Welcome to the DNVGL Talks Energy podcast series. Electrification, rise of renewables and new technologies supported by more data and IT systems are transforming the power system. Join us each week as we discuss these changes with guests from around the industry. I'd like to welcome back Dr. Andrew Garrett to continue our discussion from last week. Andrew, last week we discussed the impact of COP21 in Paris in December 2015 and the evolution of the wind industry over the years. Perhaps we could pick up where we left off in talking about the great advances in the level of supply to the electricity grids around Europe and the world. Hello, Matthias. We can maybe talk a little later about how that all started and who, who was involved in the early big turbines. You mentioned you mentioned Grovian, uh, which yep. was, of course, made by, by uh, MAN. And there were lots of other people like that, big, big industrial players, particularly aerospace players involved in the early days. Uh, and... Uh, Sadly, almost none of them remain. Yeah, this is actually one observation which which I wanted to discuss with you as well was, I mean, certainly to some at some point, at least in Europe, we started to do these things, wind and solar to be greener. People like to spend money for this, maybe also to look, make themselves look greener when companies invested in this. But whatever we developed in Europe uh, was then later um, mass deployed by countries who really were in need of electricity and I'm thinking mainly here of China and to some extent India yeah. and um, it's an interesting combination that maybe the, the start of the engineering development is in Europe but it needs then a nation country to actually bring the prices dramatically down that happened in wind that happened in um, solar we see it now happening in Asia with storage um, and for some extent, with, with regards to technology development, at least we see now China taking a leading position in carbon capture. So while we are jumping on these company, uh, on these countries sometimes because of their emissions, on the other hand, they are actually making this technology financially viable or more affordable, which is actually helping the whole thing. But so I'd like to talk a little bit about um this um this area where we say okay the different motivations for renewables in the different parts of the world uh, which then also has an influence of on the players who actually are in this field or then leave that space again because maybe it's not an interesting market for them anymore so maybe we, we can talk about part, uh, about that one yes okay well, let me, let me just uh, go back to where I was uh, a, a minute ago. So if you, if you look at how, <coughs> excuse me, how the wind energy business started, it, it started um, in two quite distinct ways. It started with um, uh, some very small companies. I mean, literally people in farmyards and backyards in Germany and, and Denmark making their own very small turbines. Uh, at the same time, uh, there were quite a lot of central government intervention with large-scale capital grants to the, the likes of uh, MBB and MAN, uh, British Aerospace, um, GE, uh, Air Italia, uh, Messerschmitt, uh, those people. And, the, and the, the feeling then was, if this was going to, by central governments, if this is going to work, it has to work on a large scale. It turned out that they were right, I would say, but they, but they didn't have the right mechanism to get there. So we had the very beginning, in, essentially in Northern Europe, with a bit of Californian activity 
which was slightly different in, in its nature. And I perhaps come back to that very much driven by tax uh, and, and less by engineering integrity. And um, the, the, the two parallel paths in Europe developed side by side with almost no communication uh, between them. And um, then there was a, a very important European program called uh, um, Vega. Uh, yes, yeah, WEGA, and it was uh, a central European Commission activity, which had decided that it was necessary to get commercial megawatt-scale machines. Uh, and um, there's a chap called Wolfgang Peltz. Who, who ran this this program, and he he got a, one. I think it was Vestas in the first instance to to commit to making a megawatt machine, and then by giving them a, a good chunk of money, and then he was able to go around the others and say, well, Vestas is doing this, you know, oughtn't you to join in? And they did. And it's it's quite rare that I think that that, that a, a, an initiative. A European initiative or a government initiative has has quite such power as this thing, but the the timing was perfect. And so the result of that Weger initiative was to bring together the the small scale um, turbines that were being produced and the big scale science that was being produced, which hitherto had not um, had not really met. And that I believe that those two or three years of that program was the beginning. <clears throat> of the large-scale wind turbines that we see now. And incidentally, just as, 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 a, as an aside, we, as Scarrett and Sam there, were in an absolutely perfect position to benefit from this because in those days, European projects needed to have at least three different nationalities. In this case, there would be a manufacturer, a developer, and somebody else. And we managed to be the somebody else for a very large number of different uh, projects, which gave, which, which made us become European very quickly, gave us a huge amount of experience uh, in in how these big turbines behaved, and allowed us to develop our tools, both predictive uh, and measurement tools, uh, very very rapidly. So the, the, then, and then the the European effort got uh, it, it improved. Certification business arrived, of course, and I think they were very important. And of course, we're now right in the middle of that. Uh, because they inst instilled uh, high levels of quality in what had previously been a pretty rough and ready um, business. So we saw the beginning of the mature wind energy business starting to, 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 to be developed. And then gradually, uh, quite a lot of turbulent um, behavior in, in, in commercial terms, lots of people going bust and starting again and, and merging and so on. We then got to the position where the likes of, of GE and Siemens uh, appeared <clears throat> because they had seen this as something now which was a viable way of making electricity. Until they arrived, it was specialist companies. I mean, Vestas, I suppose you could still stay is, is still in, in that same category because it's only making wind turbines, but Siemens and GE uh, clearly are a different category. Now, the technology. I would disagree a little bit with what you said. The technology for wind, I, I believe, is still very much uh, centred uh, in, in, in the West and particularly in Europe. But if we look back in those early days, uh, Boeing was in. Boeing is now out. GE is now in, but it, it, it had been out for a, for, a, for, a, for a couple of decades. MAN, MBB, uh, uh, out. Uh, so a lot of the people who were there at the 
at the very beginning didn't survive uh, into the co commercial large-scale exploitation that we now see. Then we, we got to the stage where uh, the Asian uh, countries started to participate. And I, I agree with you entirely on these different types of markets. I, I used to have a user category, two, two categories of, of, of market. I would say there was an, 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 a, a, um, a conscience market and a needs market. And the, and the European market was very much a conscience market. We felt that we should do something more cleanly. And so we developed this technology. We already, in those days, we had too much electricity. We didn't need more electricity, but we felt we should do, we should produce whatever electricity we had more cleanly. Uh, in, in India in particular, uh, there was a need. I mean, there were people without uh, um, electricity and, and similarly in China. So those, those two markets are, very much distinct uh, in in their motivation and um, you mentioned and of course now china is is a market leader both in terms of installed capacity and also in terms of of manufacturer although the manufacturing is still very much the market for the, for the chinese manufacturers is still very much in china uh, and uh, india uh, similar i suppose you could say but with quite a lot of of imports but their motivation is, is and I think remains uh, different. Um, the 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 uh, the emissions that you talked about, where we blame particularly India and China for for high levels of, of uh, emissions, and of course that's a big political discussion. So we've already had our emissions, and now we're blaming them uh, for for having theirs, and that's a very awkward political question. An interesting thing on emissions, though, is so China has said that their, their emissions will peak uh, in 2030. And you can say, well, OK, that's too long. Uh, or uh, you can say, well, if China says they're going to peak in 2030, they probably are. Whereas in, in, in the West, we, we talk about all of that stuff and, we, and we, may not, we may not deliver. If you look then at how the technology has, has developed uh, in, in China itself, I think that the, the, the I, I have noted that there are, there's a, a huge, not surprisingly, a huge cultural difference in, in engineering in, in Europe and in, in I'd say in Asia, but perhaps I should say specifically China. As you know, uh, we've done a huge amount of work in China. I think roughly a third of the turbines now operating in China, uh, third of the types of, of, of uh, turbines now operating in China were designed by us. And uh, so we've seen the evolution of that Chinese market. Uh, for a Western engineer starting to work in China, it was very, very interesting because if you're in the West, there's a huge stigma attached to failure for an engineer. If, if you design a turbine and it falls apart, you, know, the, the, you are in disgrace because we go through a lot of design work, prototype work, testing, component testing, zero series, first series, and then eventually we make a commercial turbine. Uh, the stigma, and there is a stigma in, in China, but the stigma is, atta is attached to inactivity. And, and when we first got to work in China, we, we found that, that you didn't, it almost didn't matter what you did as long as you did a lot of it very fast. And, and that gives you a completely different pace of, of development. I mean, initially, it's quite frightening, and then it becomes very exciting because the Chinese approach is, well, if it doesn't work, we'll do it again. And so, you know, what's the problem? And that was a very, very exciting and refreshing thing to see. Uh, but I think they were, in the early days at least, they were just interested in getting the kit out uh, and in, into the field and not so interested in, in the R&D. 
I think the R&D is certainly now pretty well established in, in China, but with a, with a, with a big uh, input still from the West. If we look at PV, uh, then that's rather a different picture. I think the, the technology, although the technology will still be developed, I think future generations of PV may well come out of, of the West, um, either Europe or, or, or the States. The manufacturing uh, and the mass production, which is what's driven down the cost of PV, is very much an Asian thing. And that in itself is an interesting thing just to discuss briefly. The, the, the evolution, the, the, the traject cost trajectory of wind and PV has both been firmly downwards. The, the learning ratio in wind is about 14%, which means you get a 14% reduction in levelized cost of energy uh, for a doubling in capacity. Uh, and that's a sort of good but mature-ish mechanical engineering technology. The, the, the startling uh, figures for, for PV are probably a, a cost reduction of about a factor of three in five years. And if you're a mechanical engineer, that's uh, unthinkable. Now, those reductions in cost have been achieved in completely different ways. Wind has got cheaper and cheaper by getting bigger and bigger, and now is huge. And, uh, and PV has got cheaper and cheaper by making more and more of it. So if you make uh, a million or 10 million panels of the same, same, the same panels, that's a great deal cheaper than making 1,000 or 10,000 such panels. So we've seen the trajectory in exactly the same way, the speed a bit different, but PV starting from a higher level, but both moving towards uh, uh, grid parity uh, and, and in a very exciting way. And the last thing that's happening now, which I think you mentioned very briefly, um, if you can remember the question you asked me before I started talking, <laughs> uh, is about storage. And I think the, the evolution of storage, is, storage has been the holy grail uh, for, for as long as I can remember. Uh, and I think nothing much has really happened until, let's say, five or ten years ago. Now, there's a huge amount of, of, of activity. And I mentioned the electric plane earlier on. That electric plane is only possible because batteries have become lighter. I bought an electric car last year, uh, only possible because batteries have become lighter. But there are all sorts of other stories going on as well. So. Technology is still very much based in the West for wind, less so uh, more in the East uh, for, uh, for PV. Uh, storage has become important. Different, different motivations, uh, needs and conscience, I think is a useful way of putting it. And now it's become business. And, so, and, and some deep green people, I think, still find that quite difficult to take. My view is that the, the, the fact it's, it's now become a business like any other for making, for making electricity is absolutely vital in order for us to make big inroads. So the motivation for companies getting involved now may be primarily, uh, well, this is a good business in which, you, in which to be involved. And by the way, there's a bit of a bonus uh, that it's low carbon. Right. And we have time for one more question, and I want to make it two. Um, um, continuing with your thoughts on technology, if we look at 2000, uh, well, no, how do we solve this? 20, 2100 probably. <laughs> um, yes. So do we still have um, horizontal axis, three blade wind turbines? Plus, will we have a world which is, at least on the electricity side, powered by renewables only? Okay, <laughs> two, two, two different questions. I think um, 
the answer to the first one, the, the three-bladed horizontal axis, I think the answer, I'm sorry to say, I think the answer is probably yes. Um, I, I think we might have very different things inside the nacelle than what we've got now, and the materials for the blades might be significantly different. We have, I would say, a blot on our uh, particular copybook uh, in terms of the recyclability of our composite blades, and so thermoplastics or, or something else might take their place. So there's still work to do on many, many of the details, but I think the basic configuration onshore will be the same. I think the basic configuration offshore might be radically different, and I, I've made some rather extravagant proposals myself in the past. <laughs> and so we might have huge floating structures with space frames with 20 or 30 5 megawatt wind turbines uh, on them. So you might have a 150 megawatt turbine floating somewhere in the sea, or there's no need for those turbines to be three bladed anymore. And they, they could look quite different. So I think I think we're starting with the offshore technology, which might look radically different. I think we are we're getting something like a, um, uh, a uh, consensus on the basic architecture of onshore turbines. Uh, but the means of generation might be radically um, different. Then uh, I think something different with PV. I, I gave a presentation the other day, followed by someone who gave a presentation on, on PV. I talked a bit about wind energy becoming a commodity. I also made similar comments that I've just made now. And the guy who was talking about PV, who was a, who was a, a physicist, of course, um, he was talking about the possibility of, of real quantum leaps in technology so that so that there might be a completely different mechanism, a different basic mechanism to generate electricity from the sun to the one that we're using now. And so that sort of, of quantum leap, I think, is no longer available to us. Uh, but I think PV could be in for another huge change uh, along with the with storage. So those two things are different. Um, we haven't talked about the, the, the longer lead items like wave and, and tidal uh, geothermal. Um, I think uh, that they may well have, have a place. In 2100, uh, will we have our electricity generated by renewables? Yes, we will. And if we don't, then we're in big trouble. Uh, so we need, we need to get going. And going back to the, the beginning with COP, uh, having the COP meeting and having consensus at the COP meeting is an extremely important thing to do. But the, what, what came out of there was also the urgency of doing stuff and not, not just talking about it. Uh, so we, we have the means now to, to uh, generate our electricity from, from renewables. We need the big system view like we, we, that we talked about earlier on, and the technology will develop and, and the price will fall, uh, but we have to get on and do it. So yes, and I think it'll be before 2100. Very good. That's a very strong statement to close. Yes. <laughs> thank, you very, <laughs> thank you very much for this highly interesting uh, conversation. Um, I learned a lot and I hope everybody who listened enjoyed it as well. Um, well, it leaves me to just say thank you for joining, Andrew. And, oh, thank you for the opportunity. Um, yeah, thanks. And hopefully uh, you listen to the next series uh, coming up soon. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this DNVGL Talks Energy podcast. To hear more podcasts in the series, please visit dnvgl.com slash talksenergy.